Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, we landed another rock star from Finance Twitter as our guest. Doomberg is an anonymous account with over 142,000 followers on Twitter since being founded in May of 2021. It's also famous for its green chicken brand. Doomberg is actually a small team of industry consultants coming from the commodity sector, which specializes in distilling complexity. They write predominantly about energy, but they're also interested in the news of the day. So they've written about crypto, meme stocks, and bankruptcy court. Andrew Huan sit down with the green chicken to discuss the difference between physics and platitudes, flows payback in the context of energy and climate change, fossil fuels in the future of cement, steel, ammonia, and plastic, what is actually hydrogen and nuclear in the context of emerging markets and accessing the raw materials. Enjoy. Doomberg, welcome to the Body Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Uh, Juan, Andrew, doing great. It's pleasure is all mine. Looking forward to a fantastic discussion today. Can you please introduce yourself, understanding that you are, of course, anonymous account? Could you provide us with a background on why are we seeing a green chicken on your side? Yeah, uh, sure. So as I said, real pleasure to be here. I'm the head writer of Doomberg. Doomberg is a small team of um, industry consultants. We come from the commodity sector and our specialty is sort of distilling complexity into um, accessible discourse, either written or spoken. Through the years, we developed several product lines in our consulting business. One of them was helping content creators run their businesses better. And, and several of our clients suggested that we consider starting our own content creation business. And some 17 months ago, 16, 17 months ago, we, we decided to do so. And, and we built the Doomberg brand from scratch using all the principles that we would use to teach our clients. And uh, it's been a fascinating journey and incredible success beyond all of our wildest imaginations. And the, the anonymity serves a couple of purposes. First of all, Doomberg is not a person. Many content creators can orient a brand around themselves. We we chose not to do that. And considering that we were stand, you know, starting from a, a standing start, it's difficult to stand out as a person as well. You know, just another face as your Twitter icon is sort of forgettable. Uh, and one of the rules of marketing is that you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And the green chicken stands out. It's kind of sort of funny without being silly. Uh, which is one of our brand attributes. Uh, and then once it took off, of course, we could never reveal ourselves, even though many people on Wall Street know who we are. And it's not like, you know, we're not doing this out of personal safety or, or something like that. It's more brand protection at this point, because if we did sort of come out as individuals, it would collapse the mystique and the intrigue around the brand. And so um, it's more preservation of brand value at this point. Um, we're very proud of the brand that we built. And we, you know, we, we chop away at it every single day and we're very protective of that brand and to do anything that would risk it at this point would be foolhardy. And, and so that's the, the primary driver behind the desire for anonymity. Like we say, you know, Substack knows who we are and our payment processor obviously knows who we are and you know, we have to pass, uh, know your customer, anti-money laundering, like everybody else. And we happy, happily do so. And, and we don't keep our identity all that secret, but having said that, you know, for the for the broader brand ambition, now that we have such a big following on Twitter and so many subscribers on Substack, anything that threatens the brand is, is a no-go zone for us. What's really interesting is that Doomberg came live very much during the pandemic. Is that correct? Or, or were you guys working together before the pandemic? 
yeah, we were we were a firm meant, you know, several years together, but the pandemic did change our course. And, and we've said this on other podcasts, and I don't mind repeating it here. We had built up a very nice consulting business, but we were catering to predominantly publicly traded companies and maybe some wealthy family offices. And when COVID hit, uh, we lost a substantial portion of our revenue, particularly effectively all of our publicly traded company revenue, um, because turning off consulting is, is a very easy thing to do in a time of crisis. And everybody sort of has memory of the recovery from the depths of the lows in March 2020, but few, well, many business owners remember just the reason why we got into that hole, which is because, you know, the economy seized up and and so we had a real decision to make as a firm, you know, what handles could we pull? And we got an excellent piece of advice from a, a pretty famous hedge fund manager that we happen to know uh, in real life. And, and he suggested that we create this new line of business where we help content creators who specialize in selling their content to Wall Street. Um, his view was that um, while many of them were great at creating content, um, few of them knew how to run a business as effectively as he knew we could do. And um, that was a real turning point for us. We decided to launch that product. And then over the next year, year and a half, we sort of more than reestablished all of the business that we had lost. And that's sort of a typical American entrepreneurial flexibility, right? Well, you have to adapt to the, to the hand that you're dealt. You can either you know, go home or get up and, and keep trying. And we decided to get up and keep trying. And then in so doing, we discovered that not only could we do it, but we would enjoy doing it. We found ourselves like um, jumping in and helping with the content more and more, not just with the marketing of the business or the branding of the business or the demand creation or the operations, um, which are all sort of things we specialize in. And ultimately, um, at the encouragement of, of one client in particular, said, you know, you, you guys would follow all of your own advice. Like one of, one of the frustrations of consultants is, you know, your, your clients don't always listen to everything you say. And that can be challenging. And so we, um, we, it was a really insightful comment. The old adage is those who can do and those who can't teach. And in a way, consulting is sort of a, an expensive form of teaching. And we wanted to prove that wrong. So in the beginning, Doomberg was uh, initially thought to be a showcase for our consulting business. Look at this content creation business that we could create. Surely we could help you with yours. Um, it's kind of showcase marketing. But it um, succeeded to the point where we actually have stopped accepting new clients on the consulting side. and are focusing more and more of our efforts on Doomberg because it's the work of our life and it's um, the funnest thing we get to do. And so it, it, it really great. It's, it's, it's the thing I'm personally most proud of in my life um, that we were able to do this so effectively and so quickly. You know, I had a very good career in corporate America. I have, you know, I'm very proud of my education and the hard work that went into those things, but those accomplishments pale in comparison to the pride that I feel every day, getting out of bed and, and working away at the Doomberg project. How many followers do you have nowadays on Twitter? Um, we have something like 142,000, I think, in change um, overnight at, at the time of this recording. It, it's been going relatively fast. Um, August has slowed down a bit, you know, European vacations and um, sort of summer, dog days of summer. But yeah, so it, it, we launched in May of 2021 and um, we have now... 140 odd thousand followers and all organic. Um, we don't, we don't buy followers. We don't play those games. We just produce good content every day on Twitter. Twitter is a, is a unique part of our demand creation strategy. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's been great. It's a, it's a great platform. If you treat it well, like anything else, there's also some challenges with that platform, uh, incredible toxicity, if you get sucked into it um, and so on. And so we've developed strategies for, for how to use Twitter effectively for its intended purpose. You know, the, the Doomberg Twitter account is not an outlet for my personal opinion. It is the strategic intent of the Doomberg Twitter account is to drive demand for Doomberg Substack. And so we have a general rule, for example, which is um, if we would never write about it, we don't tweet about it. And that allows us to um, dodge many of the controversies of the day and to avoid some of the sort of cancel culture. Um, if we would write about something, we are very confident in steadfast in our views in that topic. And so then it's open season to tweet about it. And that's a very powerful rule, one of many that we've implemented so that we could get the most out of Twitter uh, without getting sucked into some of the, uh, the dirty underbelly of the platform. You have two big followers in Andrew and I, and we really, really enjoy your content in all of its forms, Twitter and the Substack. And we've listened to many of the podcasts where you have been and it's a real pleasure to have you here. Can I ask you, where are you based at the moment? We are based in the Midwestern part of the United States, flyover country, um, as we like to say, and uh, Eastern time zones. So we sort of uh, roll with the cycles of the New York Stock Exchange uh, predominantly. 
Um, so yeah, that that's where we are. And, and you know, in today's hyper-connected um, world, you can create um, a digital business from anywhere. Um, and, and this is where we've decided to create ours. We tend to associate you with all of the work that Doomber has, has done on climate change. You appear to be also commenting on crypto and that sort of things. That is that, am, am I getting it wrong where you guys are coming from? So I would, I would say we don't write about climate change per se, we write about energy um, okay. predominantly. I would say roughly two thirds of our pieces have an energy bend to them, but we're also interested in the news of the day and, um, and pride ourselves on being able to quickly learn things and, and to distill complexity into accessible discourse. And so, you know, we have written about crypto. Um, we were pretty fascinated by it. We have written a lot about certain meme stocks. Um, AMC in particular is one that we find interesting. We have pretty good experience in the corporate sector uh, on our team. And so we can draw on our experience in bankruptcy court to comment on the, the Twitter case. We can draw on our, our experience in private equity. One of well, the editor-in-chief of Doomberg uh, comes from the private equity sector and, and understands that industry quite well. And, you know, the complexities of a capital table and, you know, my price, your terms and or your terms, my price, those types of venture capital type things. And so we've written um, about, about certain aspects of the private market as well. And, and as we've said on other podcasts, we almost exclusively only invest in the private market. And so that's one where we know pretty well what's going on and, and have some expertise. Um, but I would say, you know, two thirds of our pieces are energy. Uh, and then one third of our pieces are interesting off the beaten path type topics or our take on sort of the, the viral news of the day. Um, and and we do that uh, not only to sort of keep the interest of our of our readership, but also to keep keep it interesting for ourselves. And so that that's sort of the content strategy, and and that's just roughly the partitioning of the topics. Really interesting. I have to say that Doomberg has coined, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, some great sayings since going live. But maybe my favorite is in the battle between physics and platitudes, physics is undefeated. That sounds like something very powerful. What do you mean by that? And can you provide us with some examples? Yeah, so I, I'm a trained scientist and a couple of decades of research and development experience in the commodity sector. You know, led large teams of scientists in my career and have a pretty good molecular map of the economy and, and how it works at a chemical and physical level. And um, what we mean by in the battle between physics and platitudes is the laws of physics dictate certain constraints. And so, you know, at the, at the highest level, uh, and we've written about this a variety of times from different angles, we popularized the phrase, can't say that we coined it, um, energy is life. Ultimately, the human endeavor is a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. And your standard of living is literally defined by how much energy you get to waste in battling entropy. You know, right angles don't spontaneously appear in nature. So in order to, to have a decent standard of living, you must have access to a certain amount of primary energy so that you can waste it. And all humans everywhere, as a general rule, would like a higher standard of living. The amount of integrated amount of standard of living we can distribute across society is bound by physics. How much primary energy are we producing? And there's no way to circumvent that. And so if you aren't going to produce a sufficient amount of, of primary energy, then it necessarily follows that some amount of standard of living decrease must be absorbed by society. Now, who does the absorbing and what the consequences of that absorbing are puts you into the realm of politics. But when we say platitudes, like you can stand up at a cocktail party and say, we must eliminate our use of fossil fuels by 2040. There's just no way to do that without decimating the standard of living of billions of people on the planet. Um, and so if one necessarily follows the other, then we should be discussing that. Like we might decide as a, as a species that, you know, sacrificing half of us for um, the good of the quote unquote planet uh, might be something we, we, we all should be willing to do. And to which I would say you first, but that, that, that's just the fact, like energy is life um, and physics dictates the standard of living across society and how much energy you get to waste defines where you are in the totem pole or, or are you near the base of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or are you near the apex of it where you can comfortably tell everyone else in the world what to do, I think has a big input into your views on the matter. Um, and so you can't wish away physics. Ultimately, in the long run, physics has to be confronted uh, and dealt with. Those are laws, platitudes are opinions. 
would you say that platitudes have been winning the argument over the course of the last five years? Uh, I would say 15 to 20 years, and I would characterize the primary reason why platitudes have had the comfort of um, occupying much of the public square flows from the fact that the past couple of decades have been a period of relative abundance in primary energy, driven predominantly by the revolution in the shale patch. And so when you have excess primary energy, you can be tricked into believing that primary energy is just another commodity and not a foundational one. It's only during periods of energy shortage where you realize the true price and elasticity of demand for energy because, as we said, uh, what's the price elasticity of demand for life and who can afford to pay it? And you'll find that the richest in the world will pay almost any price for life, for the well-being of their family and their children, and that will, by definition, price out and export inflation to the rest of the world that can't afford it. And what, that's what we're seeing now um, as a consequence of what we're characterizing as a period of primary energy shortage relative to demand. Um, that shortage has arisen from lack of funding in the fossil fuel and nuclear sectors, running up against the uh, emergence of massive uh, populations of, of aspiring middle class, especially in Asia. You know, who are we to say who gets to have a good standard of living and who doesn't? And so this, this again, is, is because we're in a period of energy shortage and we're seeing the collapse, for example, of the European energy infrastructure, we are now finding that we will soon have far less tolerance for platitudes. And the population will demand that our political class reacquaint themselves with the fundamental laws of physics. One just to follow on from that point on trade-offs and standards of living. So that, that kind of sounds a little bit like some of the work that William Nordhaus did a few years back that, that won the Nobel Prize, just the, the trade-offs between uh, the amount of warming we should maybe let the climate do versus the, the good to mankind in terms of standards of living that might accrue from using more energy, including more fossil fuels. Do you have any thoughts on uh, that kind of analysis specifically? Yeah, I can't speak to the direct conclusions of, of his analysis because I'm unfamiliar with them, but it sounds very sensible and it sounds very logical, which is how we would approach it. You know, laws are laws. If we forgot everything we knew about science and um, spent, you know, a couple of centuries relearning it, we'd end up at relatively the same conclusions <laughs> because those are sort of fundamental aspects of the universe. And, and so, yeah, it, it is a trade-off. I mean, again, these are the exact kind of adult conversations uh, we need to be having, which is what is our best estimate of the anticipated damage to the planet, taking into account our ability to remediate, but also uh, understanding that we should have a shared human objective to have a, a reasonable standard of living for as many people as possible. Now, once you sort of take that third variable into consideration, you enter into all, all manner of political discussions like capitalism versus socialism versus universal basic income versus, you know, pick your favorite. But ultimately, if there isn't sufficient primary energy, then not, all those other conversations become a little less relevant as people, you know, scramble for the life-nourishing energy they need to just maintain their existence, let alone to thrive. That's a great segue into my next question, which is something that I believe that you've mentioned before, and is the fact that a lot of the current perception lies on what you have coined as energy ignorance. Is that correct? Does that uh, ring a bell? Yeah, a friend of mine on Twitter has coined that phrase, and, and occasionally I indulge in the, in the attempt to popularize it. But yeah, getting energy wrong has massive consequences, which I would argue the Germans and, and by extension, the Western Europeans are experiencing directly as we head into the winter right now. These are foreseeable policy errors um, that we have been writing about for over a year that are uh, amazingly coming to fruition like a slow-moving train wreck but we watch it every day and it's just truly incredible. And so when we say energy ignorance, what we really mean is physics ignorance, but that, yes. So that is a phrase that we, um, we indulge in a little bit on Twitter. And, and a way to combat that is to try to educate people and to educate people. You guys have been trying to put some of these complex matters in concepts or frameworks that are more digestible and easier to understand. And so, one of the things that caught our attention is the way that you were kind of putting the energy market in the context of flows and paybacks, payback, just in the same way that one thinks about money flows and investment paybacks when talking about finance terms. So can you explain what this mental framework is and why is it so powerful to show that following its current course, it will be very difficult to achieve the targets we have self-imposed for 2030 or even 2050? 
when you consider a project in the financial world, um, you know, a business leader is is deciding on whether to engage in a capital project or in the acquisition of a competitor. Many in, on Wall Street are familiar with sort of discounted cash flow models. So there will be a time T equals zero monetary outlay, and then you will get hopefully a series of cash flows in the future. And depending on the discount rate you apply to those cash flows, you can calculate whether the project is profitable enough to meet your weighted average cost of capital and so on and so on and so on. Um, you could do the exact same thing um, with energy. And in reality, we have argued, especially with uh, a presentation we gave to our pro-tier members, um, that energy is actually the real currency and that currencies are just constructs that overlay our energy transactions in the hopes of making them more efficient and, and in some ways more equitable. So um, instead of thinking of financing a project with, with fiat currency, think of financing an energy project with joules um, or pick your favorite you know, measurement of energy. Um, so the amount of energy that you have to invest upfront needs to be paid. And then much like with a financial project uh, cash flow, um, the energy payback matters a lot. And so let's take um, nuclear, for example. Um, the amount of energy it takes to create a nuclear power plant gets paid back in six weeks. Um, and so um, the amount of energy you have to spend to increase the share uh, of nuclear on your grid is relatively small compared to the steady stream of really reliable long-term energy flow back to humans who can then use this energy to spread increased standard of living around. Similarly with sort of drilling, you know, for, for natural gas, you know, once you've drilled it, all this abundance of excess energy comes at you pretty quickly. And depending on the decline rates of the fields, you know, the total energy return is, is pretty substantial. But of course, that comes with the penalty of CO2 emissions. And, and if we decided as a society that we want to minimize those, then um, we have to take that into account. But from just a pure energy perspective, these things matter. And then if you go to things like solar, um, there's debate about the energy payback period of solar. You know, do you have storage with it, um, you know, are you truly accounting for all of the disruptions in the grid? But let's just imagine, I'll be generous and say that the payback period for solar is a year. Well, if you want to install 5% of your grid, um, you have to take 5% of your energy in any particular year to do that. And that's a huge energy pull. And so those are just sort of concepts that then you can measure that allow you to consider how viable is it that we could quote unquote, replace a substantial portion of our fossil fuel primary energy with alternative means. And, and there are certainly ways to do it. They, we believe they would necessarily involve a massive renaissance in nuclear power. But um, once you sort of have that framework, then you could get down to the question of measuring and debating what the flows are at T equals zero, how much energy are you truly getting back? You know, what is the capacity factor of the installed energy plant that you're putting in there? You know, how often does it run? That's what capacity factor means, like your nameplate capacity versus how much energy it actually produces can be two very different things depending on the technology. And so for example, nuclear is in the nineties and solar is around 25%. And so once you sort of get all of the honest numbers in, then you can have a, a, a legitimate and, and fair assessment of the suite of technology options available to us. If we decide that we would like to have a decent standard of living for everybody with minimal CO2 emissions. And then again, as I said earlier, many of these numbers become hyper-political that it is, and it is disappointing, but not uncommon for scientists to literally make stuff up to, to meet an agenda that they have. Um, and so it's not quite as straightforward as I describe it, but is a useful framework for considering our energy strategy on a go forward basis for society. So what would be the payback for something like solar in terms of what you just explained and described? Yeah, again, it depends on many assumptions. Um, the estimates range from one to four years, you know, it, it, and it makes sense because the production of polysilicon is incredibly energy intense. You know, sand is a thermodynamic sink. And you, if you start with sand and you create pure, you know, solar grade polysilicon, um, you're putting in an enormous amount of energy up front um, to do that. And so then the time it takes for you to produce enough electricity to have justified that initial energy investment depending on the setup and depending on where you are in the world and depending on how cloudy it is and depending on whether you have battery storage with your system and so on and so on and so on, ranges from anywhere between one to four years. Um, but again, the assumptions that go into those calculations are hyper-political. You would have some people who don't want solar exaggerating the payback period time and some people who really want a lot of solar, perhaps minimizing the energy payback period time. And you have to be mindful of 
everybody has their biases and, and scientists are no more immune from such biases than anybody else in society. Okay, and so what about wind? What would be wind's uh, payback? Again, you can find all of these numbers. The National Renewable Energies Laboratory in the U.S. puts out various estimates of various technologies. And again, it depends where you're putting your wind turbine and how long the blade is and how efficient the, the motor is that is you know, capturing the energy uh, up in that little box there at the center of all of those blades. How much downtime is there? You know, how, Do you have to stop the wind turbine to clean up all the dead birds on the ground? I mean, there's a thousand different calculations that you have to consider, and, and those are hyper-political numbers. But all energy payback periods um, are much, much longer than the payback period of nuclear power, for example. Yeah, just wanted to dig in a little bit more to the, the physics versus platitudes uh, line, just um, maybe talking about some of the renewable technologies, the kind of consensual renewable technologies specifically. So if I, if I put you, say, something like solar, could, could you talk a little bit about some of the, the kind of aspects of, of physics uh, and science that are that have been conveniently, conveniently overlooked with when in people's discussion of that. Yeah, so I think we have been perhaps misconstrued as being overly negative on solar. We are uh, realistic about solar, and in fact, we're big fans of solar for the following reason. The Earth is not a closed system, and the amount of energy that the Earth is bombarded with every day from the sun is, is enormous. And, um, and we believe that we should always be investing in the development of solar technology, both research and development, and tinkering around with it and installing it and see how it works and how, we could, how could we improve it and are there innovative ways to convert its intermittency into a source of energy that has more characteristics of a baseload power. And so I, we do believe that there needs to be a place in the um, collective energy strategy for solar, uh, much more so than wind, for example. And our main issues with solar, and we have pretty deep experience in the industry, is that we have allowed the Chinese to take over the production of solar and uh, trick people into thinking that the recent decrease in price for polysilicon, for example, flows from some you know, innovation curve, some S-curve of innovation, when in reality, and I think it's pretty conclusive and we lived it, so this is experience that we have firsthand, the Chinese essentially leverage, let's call it um, forced labor or cheap labor and dirty coal to flood the world with artificially cheap solar panels and took over the, the most valuable aspects of that supply chain. And so now you have 90 plus percent of all the polysilicon in the world uh, made in regions of the world that the U.S. government and the EU believe exploit slave labor. And, and we are riding on the backs of that nefarious behavior on the part of the Chinese Communist Party, make ourselves feel good about installing solar in the West. So yeah, I mean, th this is stuff we lived in and they stole intellectual property from Western companies. And it became uneconomic for those in the West to compete with the Chinese who weren't playing by the rules. And they've done the same in many of the critical industries uh, in the renewable sector. And, and solar is a particularly glaring one um, that we lived through firsthand, uh, you know, two, two decades ago. Wind was going to be the next area I, I came on to, and, and you alluded to some of the, the thoughts you had on it there. Just again, the kind of physical constraints or, or other problems with it that aren't being considered by, by most people out there. Yeah, the challenges are pretty well known. They use an enormous amount of steel, for example, uh, in the production of, um, uh, of the giant you know, pillars that hold these turbines. The other challenge, a big challenge, is the lack of recyclability of, of the of epoxy the uh, thermoset materials that go into the production of the blades. If they're onshore, uh, wind uh, has enormous land use. Classic stories of clear cutting a forest in Germany to install ever more uh, wind turbines. And so, again, uh, th these are all trade offs, of course. One of the challenges that we have in the sort of ESG platitude game is that certain technologies are just pro preemptively and forever labeled as, quote, green, and there shall be no argument against them, regardless of the deficiencies, economic challenges, grift, and corruption that may uh, flood those subsectors. And, uh, and as long as we're unwilling to have an open and honest debate about the true trade-offs uh, of our energy sources, then we'll end up with a massive misallocation of capital, destabilized grid, uh, expensive energy, and on, on unhappy populations. And, and we've long argued with our friends who are passionate about ESG that the path function matters. If you get it wrong, you might not get another chance politically to get it right. And one of our concerns is that we will see a massive rightward tilt in the in the German population, for example, as they confront uh, the winter of 2022-2023 with uh, year-ahead electricity prices at 650 uh, euros per megawatt hour, a price that is, was unthinkable two years ago. And so you know, if you get this wrong, you risk forever missing out on the chance to get it right. And that's a real uh, thing. 
that you can't just wish away with platitudes. You mentioned the issue of recyclability there with regard to wind. One issue that's come up before in some of our uh, discussions with, with other people is the recyclability of solar and the prospects for or the lack of a plan, basically, for, for what to do even with the current installed solar. Is, is that something you, you, you've seen anything sensible written on? Yeah, and, and again, this is an example of where because solar is a priori good, we don't even have the time to stop and think or ask such questions. Uh, whereas we spend reams and reams of paper writing about the uh, deadly nature of nuclear waste, for example, to prevent the propagation of, of nuclear technology. And if you put those two problems, quote unquote, on a scale, the, the lack of recyclability of polysilicon uh, is a far greater challenge to the environment than um, our ability to safely handle and store the de minimis amount of nuclear waste that is produced relative to the massive improvable benefits of carbon-free power produced at nuclear facilities. And um, we've said in one of our pieces that um, if you think nuclear waste is a problem, you are either a victim of propaganda or a knowing architect of it, because it's just not a problem. Compared to the trade-offs for every other single energy source, nuclear waste is a non-issue. And so, yeah, the, the, we only observe the fact that you're not even allowed to comment on it uh, without being sort of labeled as a climate denier. And, and so that's such as the current situation in our discourse. We don't believe that is a situation that can persist because, um, again, physics won't be denied. And, and if the people are starved of enough energy, they will revolt. You know, on the, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. <laughs> the people will riot. And, and we're about to put that um, hypothesis to the test here in Europe, I'm afraid, um, this winter. Um, you've also written on, on geothermal. And there's, there's one of the renewable sources of energy that that doesn't feature very much tends to be crowded out by by solar and, and wind are, are there any other sources of renewable energy whether it's geothermal or or anything else that tends to get overlooked that you think uh, the world should be seriously thinking about investing more in well when we wrote about geothermal because it's an example of a technology where developments in a seemingly unrelated field could have a rapid and measurable impact on society that may be difficult to predict. And we love such thought experiments. And I believe in that piece that you referenced, we, we didn't, we should have, we probably opened it with a history of just how fast the shale revolution and horizontal drilling and frack, fracking um, and how much energy that developed, you know, like for a long time in the US, and this is difficult for people to conceptualize now, uh, but the whole concept of peak oil and Hubbard's peak oil theory was, um, was dogma among our political and military leaders. And we were convinced that the US would never produce as much oil as it had done in the 70s when it peaked. And that belief um, fed our geopolitical strategy for decades. You know, many, many wars are just coincidentally happen to be near where pipelines were needed to be built or where, you know, where oil fields uh, could be secured. And, and there was all kinds of you know, propaganda um, painted around the, the true reason why we, we engaged in such uh, destructive wars. If you are the US and you believe that um, you have uh, peaked in your domestic supplies of energy, then the, that strategy may even be sensible. But the, the, the breakthrough in horizontal drilling and fracking um, changed all of that. And the US suddenly became an energy superpower again, the largest producer of oil and gas in the world, and one of, now the largest exporter of natural gas via LNG. And, and we are once again able to flex our geopolitical power as evidenced by the reshaping of the geopolitical chessboard um, in Europe, Russia, and, and the US. And so um, we're often and always on the lookout for, uh, if a breakthrough happened over here, um, what could that mean over there? And one such area that caught our interest is geothermal, which essentially is just a drilling problem. Um, and so if you can easily and economically drill holes deep enough, and then pass fluid through it, you can extract heat from the core is effectively a limitless supply of it. Presumably with enough smart engineering design, you could extract carbon-free energy from it. And so that's an example of where having researched it and now on a going forward basis, if we see a headline about a breakthrough in drilling technology, we would quickly cross the dot from there to, hey, this could enable geothermal power. And what does that mean for you know, competing energy technologies and so on. And so um, that's a fun type of piece that we like to write about uh, with Doomberg. And, and so, yeah, that, that, that was our interest there. And, you know, there's all kinds of other renewable technologies. You know, we're, we're publishing a piece um, tomorrow. Not sure when you guys are publishing, but as we record this today, we have a piece in final edit around the hydrogen economy and 
what aspects do we think are interesting and what aspects do we think are hype and what would we do if we if we uh, were in charge and were given a magic wand and so on and so those are the types of things we like to discuss we like to do them in the sort of physics first approach and, and explain to our readership um, why it is that we take the positions we do. That's a great uh, segue into something that we've talked in the past with other guests and is some of the misconceptions that are around in the energy markets. And so you've touched upon the average cost of solar technology coming down. Some people refer to as the, the reason for that being the Moore's law. You didn't refer to that, but I think that that's what you were referring to. And so you just mentioned hydrogen. And so is hydrogen scalable and the solution in the future? So as we'll describe in the piece that we're publishing called um, A Hitchhiker's Guide to Hydrogen, the first thing that most people get wrong, and even some who should know better, is that hydrogen is not a source of energy. It is a carrier of energy. And it is not a particularly good one at that. Hydrogen, the molecule, H2, is incredibly reactive with air, and it produces water and releases energy, which is why it doesn't persist in nature. You can't go drilling for hydrogen and quote unquote, produce it in the same way that you might drill for natural gas. And while natural gas can be burned, you know, methane is relatively stable and can accumulate uh, underground and, and you could drill for it. Um, hydrogen, on the other hand, must be made uh, and handled under controlled conditions. And as a general rule, when you add up all of the energy losses in going from water to hydrogen and back to water again, you have to put in two times as much energy as you could um, hope to get useful work out of it on the back end. So those energy losses come both in the splitting of water and then the efficiency with which you can extract useful work from the recombination of hydrogen and oxygen to make water again. So energy, uh, hydrogen is an energy carrier. Um, it is not a source of energy. And so if you're going to have a world where you are taking advantage of the characteristics of hydrogen as a carrier of energy, you must begin the discussion with what is the primary source of energy you're using to produce the hydrogen in the first place. And this is well known by people in, in, in the hydrogen industry. But if you're going to um, you know, use natural gas in a steam reformer to make hydrogen, and you're going to emit CO2 out the back end, well, that's not a particularly good use of natural gas because you are wasting half of the energy in it just to do that cycle. And so, um, but there are alternative ways to make hydrogen and, and the industry sort of has this kind of ridiculous color coding scheme. Green hydrogen is, is when you, you, you make hydrogen using electricity from renewables that powers an electrolyzer. Blue hydrogen is when you um, use natural gas to make hydrogen, but you capture the carbon emissions on the back end and sequester them. Um, gray, Hydrogen is when you use natural gas, but you don't capture the CO2 and brown and black hydrogen are when you use coal and there's all kinds of other variants like turquoise and white and, and pink, uh, which is when you use uh, nuclear to do it because heaven forbid we ever label anything to do with nuclear as green, even though it is you know, the smartest way to make hydrogen. Um, pink hydrogen is, is, is the hydrogen that is derived from, from nuclear power. So it's very important that people understand a priori back to our energy flows. Hydrogen is just a carrier of energy um, it is not a source of energy. Hydrogen must be made. It doesn't just appear. It can't be drilled for. And the manner in which you make it and the efficiency with which you do so dictates the sensibility of using it in the economy. Um, there are, I think, if energy were free, hydrogen would be a great way to, to utilize our free energy. Um, but you know, energy is not free. Uh, and so we conclude the piece by saying, you know, in, in a world of uh, excess energy and excess cheap energy, importantly, you know, uh, an energy that has minimal um, carbon footprint, um, the use of hydrogen as a carrier could make sense in certain important applications. Um, none of those three conditions exist today. Um, energy is expensive. It's not in uh, good supply and it is derived predominantly from fossil fuels. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be researching it um, because as we say in the piece, you know, in, in the utopian world where we have a renaissance of nuclear power, um, using nuclear to spin electrolyzers to create hydrogen to burn in uh, hydrogen combustion engines would make a lot of sense, potentially. Uh, you can circumvent the need for lots of mining if you had a, an economy that you designed in that way. For example, if you're going to use it for a fuel cell, you have to get all the palladium and the precious metals in fuel cell itself. And, uh, and so there's some challenges there. It's a redesign of, of the vehicle fleet, whereas you know, hydrogen combustion engines, while less efficient than fuel cells, uh, look a lot like internal combustion engines, and we know how to make those at scale and 
and uh, simply burning the hydrogen gives you water uh, out the tailpipe, just like uh, using a fuel cell does. And so, but we go into all of those different scenarios in the piece and we try to explain the pros and cons and, and we sort of conclude with sort of a nuanced um, perspective on hydrogen. It's certainly um, an interesting energy carrier that does give you the benefit of uh, closed loop carbon free. If you have enough primary energy that you can create um, using carbon free uh, sources, i.e. nuclear power. So with that background in mind, how far away are we in the human species to be able to use hydrogen as a carrier in a useful way? Uh, we could do it today, but then you would, how much energy would you be taking from other life critical uh, ambitions we have as a society? Like, um, for example, there, were, there is no technical invention required to build a fleet of small modular nuclear reactors that power distributed, uh, a distributed army of, of electrolyzers. Um, think of them as sort of future gas stations and, um, and pulling up in a car and filling up your um, carbon fiber reinforced gas storage tank, um, getting up to five or six or 700 bars of hydrogen pressure, and then burning that to, to move your car around with a range of 350 or 400 miles. All those technologies exist today. They require no special inventions. They require some money and a lot of political will, which is unfortunately in very short supply. See, it seems to us like it doesn't really matter who we talk with. Everything comes back to nuclear. And I know that Andrew is very much looking forward to asking you a lot of things about nuclear. But before we go into that, I wanted to ask you in this war between narrative and reality, some of the fallacies that are going around into feeding the narrative, what is your view on the transition to an EV 100% fleet? We would argue and have argued that there is insufficient battery materials and insufficient copper to convert a measurable portion of our fleet to electric vehicles. And if battery materials are the constraint, then we should manage to those constraints. Now, I do believe that there does exist um, excellent engineered um, hybrid, uh, plug-in hybrid platforms that could abate 70 to 80 to 90% of the total amount of fossil fuels used with far less drain on battery materials. And so I'll give you an example. You know, if you take um, this uh, grotesque um, GM uh, Hummer EV and you took the battery pack out of that, you could make a dozen plug-in hybrid EVs where uh, the owner of those plug-in hybrid EVs could abate uh, the vast majority of their fossil fuel usage, um, still have a internal combustion engine as backup so they don't have to worry about range anxiety. Um, but if you drive less than 40 miles a day, you can get 40 miles a day of range on a 20 kilowatt hour battery pack. Even better, uh, the Toyota Prius uses, I think, a four kilowatt hour battery pack, if I'm not mistaken, and they get 40 to 50 miles per gallon on average, just regular driving. Um, in fact, they do better in the city because, than the highway because there's more chance to um, capture um, regenerative braking losses. And so if we have a finite amount of battery materials and we are simultaneously demanding that we change our fleet to electric vehicles while protesting the siting and permitting of new mines, we're going to see, you know, um, where they're going to run up against the hard wall of physics. Uh, there just is not enough nickel and cobalt and lithium and copper wire to uh, transform our fleet in the way that the electric vehicle proponents would like. They aren't managing to constraints properly. And we'll see, inevitably, um, the price of these battery materials will skyrocket. Nickel went crazy this year. You know, one of the biggest nickel producers was short squeezed uh, and the price of nickel you know, quadrupled. Um, over a period of a couple of days. These are all things that happen when uh, inelastic materials have more demand than they can supply. So it'll ultimately resolve. It's impossible to convert uh, a meaningful portion of our uh, automotive fleet into electric vehicles, given the existing and anticipated supply of the critical materials that are needed to make the batteries that would go in those cars. It's just undeniable. And you just look at copper, you know, with all of the social upheaval in South America, um, where, you know, uh, one of the problems with the West is we have outsourced the sort of dirty parts of the economy to other parts of the world because of NIMBYism. And so good luck getting a new mine sited and permitted in the U.S., even in Canada. But the largest sort of producers of the world of copper, for example, are in um, Africa and South America. And they might have uh, less stringent environmental standards than we do, but they still have societal problems. That, and inflation that we're exporting is disrupting those societies. And so we think a second and third order impact of inflation is we're going to choke off supply of these critical materials. And so um, conceptually, if you had unlimited free energy, the um, efficiency of sending electricity over wires and charging a battery is very high, much higher than, for example, a, a hydrogen combustion engine with all the losses we described earlier. 
but you are going to run into the constraint of um, battery materials, uh, which need to be mined. And those mines don't exist. The inelasticity of demand for those materials is high. And so we expect those prices to skyrocket and to make it uneconomic. So back to nuclear, I guess if we put some of the more uh, irrational you know, fear factor uh, issues to do with um, sentiment towards nuclear to one side, I guess the the pushbacks that we we hear from a more practical standpoint would be the large upfront cost of nuclear power plants and also the the time taken to, to build them, which uh, certainly in the, the UK and other parts of Europe, even if these things get approved, they take a very, very long time to, to build and they cost a lot of money. So what would you say to those, um, those criticisms, I guess, of, of nuclear as an option? So uh, two examples that counter those. So I would say, first of all, at the highest level, many of the costs and most of the delays come down to pure politics. And um, when there is political will, there is a way. And um, for example, I, I saw uh, an excellent chart on Twitter today where the average time to build all of the Japanese nuclear reactors was less than four years per reactor. So 3.8 years, I think, was the average time it took to build those out. And the other one, which we've written about recently, is, is the sort of the miraculous decarbonization of the electricity grid in Ontario, where they just decided, um, because of smog and other air pollution, that they weren't going to use coal to make electricity anymore. And over a period of a decade, um, they managed to completely eliminate the use of coal. Um, some 90% of electricity on the grid in Ontario comes from either nuclear which is the balance of it, um, and then also hydro, and then some wind. Less than 10% comes from the burning of natural gas and oil. So you have a, a, a developed economy with good standards of living that completely decarbonized its grid, and they're doing just fine, thank you very much. Now, they are dealing with uh, the fallout of trying to um, shut down their nuclear power plants and replace it with intermittent sources like wind and solar. Luckily, their uh, foray into uh, copycatting what Germany has done was ended at the voting booth. The, the party, the Liberal Party of Ontario, was completely wiped out in the 2018 election, in large part because of the scandal around a terrible implementation of, of an ESG policy. Um, but Ontario stands as proof that with sufficient political will, the grid uh, can be decarbonized. Now, the rest of our energy needs are a separate story, but the electricity grid of Ontario was decarbonized by a proactive refurbishment and improvement of their nuclear fleet and a, a political will to eliminate the burning of coal to produce electricity. And we would applaud that. And I, I think it works. Again, these are just political constraints. And um, our view is um, uh, if you suffer enough pain, you will find the political will. We'll see. Uh, how long will it take the UK to um, bring online the new reactors that Boris Johnson initially promised you know, before, he, before he resigned? It'll be an interesting case study. There's no shortage of reasons for people to point to why um, nuclear, quote unquote, won't work. Uh, we find none of them particularly compelling. And, and could you just talk us through some of the, the advantages of the, the kind of newer, smaller, modular reactors um, that, you, that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, and we wrote a piece um, recently uh, about uh, New Scale, which is a, it's, you know, a, a publicly traded company in the U.S. that had an important milestone of having one of its designs approved um, by the NRC, which is a rare thing. It's only the seventh such design to have ever been approved. And ultimately, um, after eight decades of development, I would say that the industry has radically improved what was already an incredibly safe profile. You know, the, the political demands of essentially zero risk, um, which are sort of unfair to apply to the nuclear industry, but those demands have effectively been met. Uh, we kind of make the point in the piece that New Scale's technology is sort of rather pedestrian in the sense that it's undifferentiated and there's, you know, dozens of nuclear designs that could be walk away safe um, that would literally be effectively impossible to have a, a meltdown of consequence that would, you know, release radioactivity into, um, into the environment. And so, yeah, I just think that after eight decades of development, you know, and then we started the piece by telling the story of the, of the small nuclear fleet that powers uh, the U.S. military submarines and, and uh, aircraft carriers. You know, these things have been operating for 75 years without incident, perfect safety record. You know, we know how to do this. It's doable. It's just political will. Um, the real issue in the U.S. is that we, we just don't know how to build projects of that type anymore. But if we decided we wanted to, it could happen pretty quickly. And I would point to the Chinese who are in the process of building some 150 nuclear reactors. You know, do as the Chinese are doing, not as they're saying. And they're selling us um, solar panels and epoxy blades while they're uh, burning coal and building nuclear. They're going for baseload power and they're, they're exporting intermittency to us. Um, and if we're going to be foolish enough to do it, then shame on us. But they're going to gain 
the competitive advantage over us, you know, uh, if, if we just sit here and do nothing. How would you incorporate those into a, into a grid? So would it be a series of larger nuclear power stations kind of infilled with, with smaller ones? How would greater adoption of, of that technology, how would it fit within the, the broader context of the grid? So the management of a grid is an incredibly complex technical and political challenge with a lot of economics mixed in, as you know. And I think as a general rule, the more baseload power you have, the better. The management of the peaks and the valleys can be challenging. This is where, um, you know, um, having peaking plants and something to do with the excess electricity that's useful when demand drops. But all of those things get better with higher percentage of baseload. As Ontario has proven, it's very stable grid, relatively cheap. Uh, the only thing that made it expensive was the disastrous rollout of solar. And um, in the absence of forced intermittency, grid operators have much more flexibility to do their jobs, which is to provide continuous and reliable cheap energy to the population so that they can live a good standard of living and, and grow the economy. Something that no one seems to mention is the fact that nuclear's raw material is not something that you can access very easily. And it's something that is very much in the hands of developed countries to a certain extent. Is this solution only for the developed economies leaving behind emerging market economies? And how do you think about nuclear in the context of world power? Yes, yeah, so there are certainly some military geopolitical challenges to the proliferation of civilian nuclear power and the temptation to convert your societal knowledge of civilian nuclear power into military applications. I would counter uh, one of the assumptions in the question, embedded in the question, which is people point to the sort of nuclear fuel and the difficulty of refining as, as a constraint, when in reality, the cost of fuel is, is almost irrelevant to the cost of operating a nuclear power plant. You know, the price of uranium could go up fivefold from here and um, operators of nuclear power plants um, wouldn't bat an eye. It, it's just such a tiny part of the cost of operating a nuclear power plant um, that it's almost irrelevant. Whereas for things like natural gas um, turbines, you know, that produce electricity, the cost of natural gas is the single most dominant in input parameter that matters. And so that's a big advantage for nuclear relative to, relative to other uh, sources of primary energy. But um, in a scenario where we have, you know, a hydrogen economy, you can imagine shipping that energy in various forms to the developed world from you know, the, the countries that are um, capable of building their own nuclear power. Uh, every, every ton of coal that China doesn't use once its nuclear fleet is up and running is, is a cheaper ton of coal that a developing economy could use. You might not like that, um, but you know, uh, ultimately the, we sort of live in a global economy. If the Chinese go nuclear and then they have a really cost advantage manufacturing sector, well, the exports of those goods become cheaper and more accessible to the rest of the world. You know, as long as you have primary energy abundance, lots of good things happen. And if you have primary energy shortage, then all of the challenges that we see now, inflation, famine, and social upheaval, uh, un undoubtedly and always follow. But I was thinking more about the access to the raw material, not so much in terms of the cost, but where do you find uranium? And then how easy it is to buy it in, to buy it and to move it around. So you, you will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an expert, but... Sure largest mines are in Kazakhstan, and then you find some mines in Africa, and some countries in Africa. And then because of the, um, because of what you were making a reference to, the, the military side of it, it's not like you can buy uranium the same way that you buy copper or nickel. So a couple of corrections. There's significant uranium deposits in Australia uh, and also in Canada. Uh, you're correct in that Kazakhstan is also a currently home of the largest um, producer. But my point earlier is not one that should be missed. To the extent that the Western world produces sufficient nuclear power to tip the global economy into a period of excess primary energy, then everyone in the globe benefits from that. And so the rest of the world need not make nuclear power at the margin for them to, at least on a second order basis, receive substantial benefit from a nuclear renaissance in the West. Right now, since we have uh, nuclear, uh, we have a, a primary energy shortage, they are the first and most violent victims of our exportation of inflation that arises from the shortage of primary power. If, if the US and Canada and Europe and Australia and Korea and Japan had uh, an abundance of primary energy because they have relied on the most physically sensible, you know, sensible from a physics perspective, uh, nuclear power as, as an anchor to their strategy, the developed world would be enjoying the dividends of, of, of that strategy 
uh, as opposed to uh, suffering the consequences of doing the reverse, which is clearly what is going on right now. It's really interesting. I want to circle back to something that you have made a reference before. It's based, or the following question is based on the book, How the World Really Works, A Scientist Guide to Our Past, Present, and Future by Backlabs Mill where he highlights that there are four materials on which humanity is highly dependent and which subsequently depend on fossil fuels. Number one is cement. Number two is a steel, which you made a reference to as one of the key component materials to build wind turbines. Number three is ammonia. And number four is plastics. In your expert opinion, is there any way to transition any of these materials away from fossil fuels? And what are the medium-term consequences of doing so? So of, of the four, um, the easiest one to do is ammonia, uh, without question. Um, so ammonia today is synthesized via the Haber process, and where you basically react hydrogen with nitrogen from the air, and you make uh, NH3 or ammonia uh, out the back end. Today, um, the hydrogen that goes into the ammonia process is, um, is synthesized using predominantly natural gas. Um, you can also do it with coal. But it would take very little technical challenge to um, synthesize that hydrogen using, you know, a, a small nuclear power plant and an electrolyzer, like we talked about in the hydrogen economy. So there's no question in my mind that political will and sufficient funding, we could um, essentially make ammonia um, carbon-free, feed the world using nuclear power uh, effectively. And so uh, the other ones are more difficult. You know, you could. It's very difficult to imagine, you know, I suppose you could run the, uh, the grinding mills at a cement factory using electricity derived from nuclear, but you still have to grind the materials and you still have to cook it in the kiln. And many people sort of don't truly understand plastics. Plastics are basically a highly economic utilization of the waste products of oil and gas refining. And so the chemical industry arose as a necessary outlet for roughly seven to 8% of the components of a barrel of oil or in the case of natural gas, the couple of percent of natural gas liquids that um, are a bit of a pest uh, in the uh, natural gas development. And so the two primary products that feed crackers, which are these giant chemical plants that produce ethylene and propylene, the two of the key fundamental components of the entire world, they are from, you know, NAFTA from oil refining and natural gas liquids from uh, the production of natural gas. And, and so the chemical sector, you know, if you had if you had free energy, I mean, you, you could make the, the chemicals we need from CO2. Um, we don't have free energy. Uh, we, we make the plastics that we use today in large part because they are sort of byproduct economics and the advantages of having to do something with those carbon atoms. You know, all of the roads are paved with asphalt because it is the still bottoms of oil refining and it needs to go somewhere. And so, you know, our economy, um, the, the carbon-based nature of our, our economy is oriented around um, getting as much as you can out of every oil barrel possible because just the volume of oil that's used means any small byproducts would build up and be uh, unmanageable very quickly. And so engineering around the extraction of use utility out of a barrel of oil is stunning and staggering and, you know, terribly underappreciated uh, in modern society. But, you know, there's hardly an atom in a barrel of oil that goes to waste. That's interesting. And what, what would be, in your opinion, the second degree consequences for damaging the flow of any of these materials? Uh, again, just a matter of cost. I mean, you, it, in the hands of a chemist, um, we could make, you know, and unlimited budget, we can make anything that we need. Again, plastics are a luxury of the byproduct economics of the fact that the chemical industry leverages unwanted byproducts of the barrel of oil or the natural gas liquids from the field. And so we have become accustomed to the relative cheapness of such materials. But in the absence uh, of our ability to use um, fossil fuels to derive them, then the cost would go up. Literally, I could start with, you know, um, corn ethanol or sugarcane ethanol in Brazil, and I could make ethylene, which I can then polymerize into polyethylene, which then I could use to make milk jugs um, or garbage bags or pick your favorite or wires that wrap around copper in our transmission cables. Like these are all things a chemist could do. It's just a matter of cost. And, and the reason why we don't use ethanol today to make ethylene, to make polyethylene, to make all those things is because one, uh, th those things are pr probably better used as foodstuffs. And two, um, it just can't compete with uh, an ethylene cracker that makes billions of pounds a year of this stuff on a massive scale with huge economies of scale, uh, economic advantages over an otherwise low energy density, you know, field full of corn uh, in the heartland of America. Uh, and so here energy density rules, and that's why we make plastics in the way that we do. In theory, there's nothing stopping us from making plastics via other means. It's just economics right now that dictates the, the uh, pathways that we've chosen. 
We're coming to an end to our tour session and we wanted to ask you in your latest piece, A Small Biggest, you wrote, war is nothing more than the concentrated conveyance of destructive energy. And we can't pass on this opportunity to ask you about energy markets in the context of the current conflict here in Europe and its geopolitical impact in the future with some of the choices that China might be following. Yeah, so when you think about what war is, you know, you, you, you store a massive amount of energy in a bomb and then you would like to place that bomb with precision uh, inside your enemy's camp. Uh, and then release all of that energy all at once in a way that destroys things. And so the the history of warfare and people like Daniel Jurgen have written fantastic books um, that sort of recast history through the lens of energy wars. You know, the, the World War II was started in part in the Pacific because the U.S. cut off Japan from oil, and Japan felt like it needed to do something about that. And the U.S. was able to um, become the arsenal of democracy, so to speak, because it had effectively limitless supplies of oil, and um, there was no sort of bombs that ever made it to the U.S. shores, and so they could produce that energy uh, unfettered by the inconveniences of war. With respect to what's going on in Europe today, we have argued that um, by handing over Western Europe's energy cards to Putin, in many ways, we enabled him and we emboldened him, and he never imagined in a million years that, um, that the Western Europeans would try to sanction his energy because what is their alternative? And as we're finding out as we head into the winter, there are no alternatives. They're talking about, you know, showering once a week and, and turning down the dials and, you know, suffering their way through the winter, and you're seeing the value-added manufacturing economy of Germany literally collapse before our eyes because of a lack of primary energy on the front end. You can't make chemicals in Germany anymore. You know, BSF Ludwigshaven was a piece we wrote a couple of months ago called Moribund Verbund. Um, that site at Ludwigshaven is in jeopardy. The entire manufacturing business model of Germany was oriented around cheap natural gas, Russia, and, and that assumption now no longer persists. And so um, if we, we are strong believers that if uh, Europe had not handed over its energy cards to Putin, he would not have been so emboldened as to invade uh, a sovereign country, uh, even though it's at his border, and he might think it's part of you know, historical Russia. We're not into the politics of it, but it's just very clear that Putin has a lot of leverage over the West, and he is um, willing to use it. And our view is that we should not give such leverage to people who don't like us. We should um, be smart about our own energy and be independent. And rely on ourselves for um, the things that we need. That's a big critical mistake in the context here, and, and we shall see how it all unfolds. Uh, it, we have characterized the resolution of the German energy crisis ahead of the 2022-2023 winter as the single greatest geopolitical event unfolding before our eyes right now, and how that manifests itself in a resolution is going to be both historic and, and extremely consequential. Is there any way for, the, for Germany to get out of the problem where they find themselves in the next four months? Uh, absent a political revolution and a dangerous rightward tilt or peace um, with Putin, it is difficult to find a path out for Germany given the fact set that we see today. Um, you could imagine a scenario where, where peace is negotiated and Nord Stream 2 is turned on and the full atomic flow of, of molecules of methane cross the border into Germany. That would alleviate a lot of it. They could be um, smart and not shut down their three existing nuclear power plants, and they could be even smarter by restarting the three they just shut down at the end of 2021. Um, but the German population has not yet suffered enough pain for such sensibilities to make their way into the political leadership. Uh, and so, unfortunately, uh, we believe um, for our many friends and followers and subscribers who live in Germany, um, there's a lot of pain ahead. I'm going to ask you a, a very ignorant question from my side, but maybe Andrew knows the answer to this. How easy it is to bring back a nuclear plant once you have shut it down? Uh, in the pantheon of challenges facing Germany today, I would uh, argue that it is deceptively simple to do so compared to all of the other alternatives. Dumberg, we are coming to an end of our session and we don't really tend to ask in our mini ESG series uh, or to our mini ESG series guests uh, a book recommendation, but it seems like you might be able to um, give us some great recommendations in terms of what to read. Uh, is there anything that comes to mind for our listeners? Yeah, I think the book you mentioned earlier, Akhtar Smear's book, How the World Really Works, is a really good one. But I would actually um, recommend a prior book of his, which was really transformative to us, um, called Energy and Civilization. Um, it's sort of a, a classic, sort of a Bible of, of solid physics and uh, an understanding of how humanity and our societies have evolved uh, in the context of 
the efficient harnessing and um, use of primary energy to do work. It's a really powerful book, one that I've read at least twice and one that I would wholeheartedly recommend um, to your listeners. For anyone that wants to reach out to you guys or sign to your Substack, where would they find you? Oh, yes, appreciate the opportunity to um, give our commercial. We write at doomberg.substack.com, D-O-O-M-B-E-R-G. And uh, we are 100% subscriber supported. Um, we take no advertising or sponsorships. All of our revenue is derived from uh, our readers. Uh, we've priced our product um, competitively. And then we also can be found on Twitter at Doomberg T, add the letter T to the end of Doomberg as in team. Somebody unfortunately is squatting on the Doomberg handle, um, but such is life uh, in the modern era. Um, we are um, active on Twitter as well. We view Twitter as a, sort of our free offering where we, we publish smaller tidbits of analysis and, and sometimes we do um, longer threads. Um, and um, we're very active. You know, we respond to DMs, polite DMs, of course. We don't respond to all DMs because many of them are trolls. Um, and uh, to emails as well. But um, our primary, uh, the primary way in which the Doomberg team subsists is through the support of our subscribers, which is is thankfully all organic. Uh, and and we are not reliant upon um, you know big money sponsors and other um, advertisers, uh, which which we believe would negatively impact our editorial freedom. And so we've been able to get a critical mass of, of subscribers to allow us to persist in this Doomberg project. And every subscriber is precious. And um, if anybody listening enjoyed this conversation and wants to read more of our work, um, the best place to go is doomberg.substack.com. Doomberg, thank you very much for your time. This was a real pleasure. Yes, pleasure was all mine. Thanks, gentlemen.